I mean, if you have a Bible, go and open up to Exodus 14. Exodus 14. As always, it is good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler David. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We'll be in Exodus 14 here in a little bit. Uh, we're continuing our Advent series looking at Jesus, the true and the better. The true and the better. And what we're doing is looking at three prominent men from the Old Testament, three leaders from the Old Testament, and showing how they point to Jesus. And really what this series is, is showing you how all of the Old Testament points us to Jesus. That every leader, every narrative, everything's getting us ready for the birth of Jesus Christ. That every leader, when you see their strength and their victory, how God uses them in power, it's getting us ready. It's a foretaste of what God's going to do through Christ. And every time you see a leader struggle or fail or sin in the Old Testament, it's getting us ready. It's shouting that even the most noble among us cannot save us. Even the most gifted leaders, even the most anointed leaders of God cannot save his people. That every single one of them is found lacking in his presence. That all of it's getting us ready for this reality that the only way we are going to be saved is if God comes down and saves us. The only way we're ever going to know God again is if he wraps himself in flesh and comes down to get us. So we look at Adam and Abraham, and today we look at Moses. Moses. Now, it's safe to say that there is no prophet, no king, no leader more prominent, more significant, or more important in the Old Testament than Moses. None. Now, you can make the argument that some are as important, David or Abraham, someone like that, But you could not say that there's anyone more important than Moses in the Old Testament. He is referenced more in the New Testament than any other Old Testament figure. So they recognize he is, in a lot of ways, this cornerstone of the faith in the Old Testament. He kind of is the forerunner of this thing. Okay, he writes the first five books of the Bible. He's the forerunner of this faith. And when you hear his story, I'm going to tell you a story here in a second. When you hear his story... It's going to be clear to you that God used him in power. You're going to hear his story. It's epic. It's incredible. And you're going to see God use him in power. But also what you're going to see is that God's greatest displays of his might, greatest displays of his power through his greatest leaders sometimes only serves to highlight a problem instead of solving it. It only serves to highlight a problem instead of actually solving it when you look at his life. See, Moses was born during a time of great evil and oppression. So the people of God, those descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, God had made them this promise. He told Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to use your little family. I'm going to bless every family on the planet through you and through your descendants. Through your descendants, through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And this people of incredible promise, you find them in this story, they've been enslaved for hundreds of years. This great promise of influence over the entire planet, through them they'd bless every family. They are enslaved for hundreds of years under the Egyptians. And things get so bad under the Egyptians that at one point the Pharaoh... When he sees how massive and, and how many numbers of Hebrew slaves there are, he wants to, wants to make them smaller. He wants to decrease them a little bit and instill some fear in them a little bit. So he makes this incredible and heinous decree. He wants to kill every single infant uh, baby boy of the Hebrews. 
He says, I want every single baby boy that's born of the Hebrews, I want them killed. And that's when Moses is born. Moses is born into this evil, this oppression. And his mom hides him for three months. She hides him for three months until she can't hide him anymore. She, she, she makes a basket. You've heard this part of the story probably. She puts baby Moses in a basket in the river, in the, river, in the reeds. And she puts his sister near the, the bank and she watches to make sure nothing happens to him. It's in that moment where Pharaoh's own daughter sees the baby and takes him in as her own and adopts him. So Moses goes from almost being killed by this Pharaoh to being in his house, being raised by him, being educated by that family. And that was his life for a long time until one day he goes out and he sees an Egyptian beating a fellow Hebrew. He watches it and he probably, maybe one of the first time he's ever seen what's actually happening to his people. And he goes and he defends his brother. He defends the Hebrew slave and he kills the Egyptian. In that moment, his life changes forever. He had grown up in prestige and anything he wanted, and now he killed an Egyptian, so now he has to flee for the sake of his own life. And he flees, and he goes into the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years of quiet. 40 years of silence. 40 years of just being a shepherd. He was in the royal family, now he's a shepherd in the wilderness. And it's in this moment where God shows up. It's in this moment where God comes to him in the burning bush and reveals to him, he has a word for Moses. Go and tell Pharaoh that these are my people of promise. Let them go. And he empowers Moses to do all these incredible things. To stand before the most powerful person on the planet at that time and tell him, the Lord has spoken. Let them go. There is people. Let them go. And he sends plague after plague after plague after plague through Moses. And what does Pharaoh say? No, no, no. No, no. Till finally, after the tenth plague, when he kills the firstborn son of anyone who doesn't have the blood of the lamb over their doorpost, finally, Pharaoh relents. Finally, he says, get away from me, leave. And it's at this point in the story, you think it's over. They accomplished it. They're free from slavery. That's it. They're walking away from Egypt. They're walking out of Egypt towards the wilderness. It's behind them, all the bad memories, all the oppressors behind them. And it's in that moment you begin to see, no, God wants something greater than just freedom. He wants to conquer Egypt. Look at Exodus 14, 5 through 7. We see Pharaoh change his mind. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. So Pharaoh's sister, and he realizes, what have we done? I want them back. And so he gets all of his chariots and goes after them. So think about Israel. They've been enslaved for 400 years. They can't fight them off. They don't have any resources to fight back. And so they're stuck. The Red Sea is in front of them. And the Egyptians are coming behind them. And they begin to cry out to Moses, Moses, what have you done? It's going to be worse than it was before. It's going to be worse than it was before. They're they're going to kill us in the wilderness, out here in the desert. Or they're going to be even more harsh to us when they re-enslave us. And then Moses stands up and calms them with this promise from God. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. 
Moses stands up in the chaos and says, hey, be quiet. You're going to see salvation today. Those Egyptians, today will be the last day you ever see them. He stands up and tells them what God is going to do. And we read the story in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the, and drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So imagine what's happening here. Moses, he sees this water, and he goes, all right, guys, I got this. They're like, really? Like that, that, that's your plan. But all of a sudden, this strong east wind blows in, howling in their ears. And all of a sudden, this water begins to part. All of a sudden, this ground is not just a really muddy and trudged through it. No, it's dry. And they walk through with walls of water on their right and on their left. Now, can you imagine what they were thinking? Some of them are probably walking through just dancing saying praise to God. Some of them are walking through thinking, we're going to die, like for sure. There's water right there. His hands are holding this thing up. I don't know how this is going to work. They walk through, and it's in this moment we see what God is trying to do. Look at verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel, they walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What an incredible scene to imagine. I mean, imagine they've walked through the Red Sea. And now they're, seeing, now they're sitting there watching the Egyptians come down the same path. They're thinking, uh-oh, we're going to get killed by them. They're still coming after us. It's in that moment, Moses again stretches out his hands, and that strong wind that had been howling in their ears begins to die down. And all of a sudden, those, that, that water begins to break, and it crushes their enemies. I mean, think about it. In a moment, the people they had feared their entire lives, gone. Gone. There's no siege. There's no hand-to-hand combat. They're just watching, and all of them are gone. The only existence of them is their bodies on the shore. Now, could you imagine? Could you imagine what that would do for your psyche? Could you imagine what it would do for your understanding for God? I mean, you just watch God do this for you. You just watch this, this water destroy your enemies in a moment. Wouldn't that make you love this God, trust this God, be in awe of this God, be bewildered by this God? And that's what happens to the people. It says they feared the Lord, they believed in him, and believed in his servant, Moses. That happens, and you would think this is the beginning of a whole new future for them. This is the beginning of a brand new chapter for them. 
they're going to be completely different. How could you not be completely different after an experience like that? Surely from now on, they would trust God wholeheartedly. I mean, surely these new circumstances would make a new people. I mean, surely, right? I mean, why would you worry anymore? Why would you have anxiety anymore? This God just killed the armies of Egypt for you. Surely he can take care of you. Surely you wouldn't have insecurities anymore. Surely you wouldn't rebel against his his word anymore. Why? Because obviously this God loves you. Obviously he knows what's right. Obviously he may have a perspective different than yours. Look how mighty he is. Look how strong he is. Surely you'd be different, right? Surely new circumstances like these would make a new people. That would make sense, but nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Not long after this event, they're already grumbling against God. Like right after this, they're already complaining to Moses and to God. See, this happens, and then Moses sings a song, which is weird to think about. Like, everybody, sit down. i got a song for you. You're like, okay, Moses, weird leadership style, but I'm for it, okay? <laughs> he sings his song to the people, and then they immediately start grumbling. They immediately say, wait, where's our food? We're hungry. What are you going to do? What? And they start saying things like, we wish we were slaves again. I mean, can you imagine that? You've been enslaved and oppressed. They've been killing your children, and you think, I want to go back there. You would think that these new set of circumstances would make them a whole new people, and yet we see them with the same old hearts and same old dissatisfaction. Same old dissatisfaction. You and I have all had this experience. We haven't walked through the Red Sea, but you've had the experience of thinking, okay, this new set of circumstances is going to change me. This new set of circumstances is finally going to change me. I'm going to be different now. I'm going to have a, I have a new job. I have a new relationship. I have a new city that I live in. I'm going to be different. And then what do you find? Same old dysfunctions, same old insecurities, same old fears, all bubble to the surface. What do you find? All that love you thought you were going to get? All that contentment you were after? All that hope and that joy you were after? It fades so quickly, doesn't it? And you feel the same way you did before, just with a new set of circumstances. You have the same old heart and same old dissatisfaction. I mean, think about how many of us right now have asked God and said, God, if you would just give me this one thing, I'd be great. I'm not asking for much. I just need this one thing. That salary, that job, that relationship, that outcome, I won't need anything else, God. But the Exodus story shows you God can show up in the most powerful and obvious of ways and you be no different. They just walked through the Red Sea untouched. Their enemies destroyed. They're free and yet they immediately are discontent. Immediately, all the things, they they would rather be slaves again than be with this God. I've seen this a hundred different ways in my life. I've seen this happen a hundred different ways in my life. I thought that marrying my wife, Lauren, would take away insecurities. Guess what? Added more. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that. I have plenty of stories about that up, but you know what I'm talking about. I thought having kids made me a man of love, made me angrier, more tired. I thought that being a pastor would change me, and it didn't. And you think about all the scenarios in your life where you thought if I got that thing, I'd be different, and to find out that you're not. To find out that you're not. 
The one that I've seen most recently in my life, that I see in all of our lives, is with money. It's with money. Lauren and I, when we first got married, I told you this story before, we didn't handle our money very well. We got in some debt. And so we wanted to, you know, follow God and repent and work through some things. But deep down what I thought is that my salary was the problem. If I just made more, I'd be better about money. I was like, the reason we're in debt is I'm making $24,000 a year. I mean, I, that's why I'm in debt. It's not because of my heart. I mean, I know it's theologically because of my heart. But really, it's because if I had more money, I'd be different. So what happened? You, you know the story. Make a little bit more money. Feel good for about three or four months. After about a year, same problems. Okay, what, no, it, oh, I need a little bit more, then I'll be different. Okay, make a little bit more money. What happens? Good for a couple months, same in about a year. I know so many people in this church who are making more money than they ever thought they ever would. Maybe you're one of them. Like what you make right now, if you told yourself 10 years ago, five years ago that you were going to make that, you'd think, man, that's, I don't need anything more than that. And what do you find yourself doing? Discontent. Spending too much. Because you think it's a salary problem. No, you can have whatever salary you want. It's not going to fix your heart. There's something in you, something in me so broken that circumstances cannot fix it. No amount of changing your environment can fix this problem inside of us. See, Moses could not fix the people then with that power. And if the same power showed up today in your life and you parted a Red Sea, it still wouldn't change you. That's what he's showing us. Moses is showing us that we need someone better. That's why God sent Christ. We need a different kind of power, a different strength, because we have a different enemy than just bad circumstances. And when you look at the life of Jesus and the life of Moses and all the similarities, it's clear that Moses was getting us ready for Jesus. Jesus was also born during a time of evil and oppression for the people of God. Now, they weren't enslaved, but they were oppressed by another world power in Rome. And Jesus, just like when when Moses was a baby, when he was a baby, a local ruler decreed that he wanted to kill all the Hebrew baby boys under two. Same murderous rampage happens when Jesus is born. So what does Jesus do? Him and his family, they flee to Egypt. The same way Moses had to go in further into Egypt for safety. Then Jesus, before his ministry, he has 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry begins. Moses spends 40 years in the wilderness before his ministry begins. Jesus left the royal family in heaven to come be a shepherd of us. In the same way Moses left the royal family to go be a shepherd in the wilderness. On and on I could go with their similarities to show you that all of Moses' life and his leadership was pointing to Christ. See, his ministry, Moses' ministry led him to the exodus. Why? Because it's going to show us that we needed a greater exodus. We need a greater rescue than what Moses could provide. See, the reason his exodus was lacking was to show us that God could move heaven and earth, move everything literally for us, and give us a new set of circumstances, and we would be no different. We need something greater than that. The problem is too deep. See, in the first exodus, the problem is out there in them. The problem is out there in them. The problem is other. The problem are the Egyptians. If we get rid of them, then we'll be changed. If we get out of slavery, we'll be different. But what happens? God does that, and they are no different. And then Jesus comes, and he begins to teach us that we have a greater enemy. We have a greater problem. And the problem is not out there in them. The problem's in here in us. In here in us. It's not other. 
It's in here. That the greatest enemy we have is our own sin against God. It's our sin that keeps us from being made new. That's the problem. That's what he came to solve. See, until our sin is dealt with, until he brings us back to God, who's the one that has all the things we're after, until he does that, you can reorganize your circumstances all you want and you'll be the same. You can keep reshuffling the deck of your life, but the cards are still the same. So Jesus has to come and do something different. That's why he has to die. That's why Jesus has to die and not just lead and teach. Because the disciples, when Jesus would tell them, hey, guys, I'm going to die, the reason they could not understand that is because they wanted him to be more like Moses. They wanted him to come overthrow the Romans, kick them out, and make us kings. We're the same way. You are the same way. I'm the same way. We don't really want Jesus to die. I mean, we know he did. We kind of have to believe that. But really what we want is for him to come and change our circumstances. Come and get rid of the evil people around me, the evil circumstances around me, and then I'll be different, God. Just do that. I don't need Jesus to die necessarily. What I need is for you to show up and overthrow this thing in my life. We're just like the disciples. We don't understand the limitations of that sort of exodus, that sort of deliverance. See, the ultimate exodus story that this whole thing's about The story actually goes like this. All of us are pinned between the sea of our sin in front of us and the wrath of God behind us. That's the real story. And we had God, we rejected him, and now all of our sins, the sea of our sin, the chaos of our sin is in front of us. And God's wrath is coming towards us, and there's nothing we can do. We have no hope. We have no way out. All we can expect is death. That's all we can expect. That's all we could hope for in this life if God doesn't show up, but God raises up a deliverer named Jesus. See, Moses, what Moses did when he was the deliverer of God's people, he stretched out his arms over the sea and God's power came through and saved them. But the true and the better Moses goes to the sea of our sin, stretches out his hands, but he stretches his hands out on a cross. And he dies, and he makes a way for the people of God to walk through unscathed. So we can walk through unscathed. See, he goes, and we're sitting on the shore watching the sea of God's wrath fall on him on the cross. As you and I sit on the shore of God's extravagant love. See, we're just like Israel. You didn't do, I didn't do anything. We just watch God accomplish everything. Like Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. See, God fought to win us back to him. He wanted those people back for him. He wanted you back for him. And the way he did that was through the death of his son. That all that wrath fell on him. The only hope the only hope this world can offer you and repeatedly offers you is new and better circumstances. It's not working here. You don't like that spouse? Get a new one. You, you don't like that, that job? Get a new one. You don't like that salary? Get more. You don't like that city? Move to a better one. And on and on they offer saying, if you just get this new thing, you'll be happy. But those new and those better circumstances will always prove powerless, Always. It just takes longer for some of us to see it, but they just prove powerless. 
And what God says, he says, hey, I want to change the world eventually, but I have to change you first. I have to change you. I have to save you first. And then I'll remake the world, but first I need to remake you. And it took the death of Jesus for us to be remade. So the purpose of this season of Advent, the reason we have Advent, is to look back at the victory of God. See, Moses and Israel, as they were walking away from the Red Sea, they looked back at the Red Sea and said, God has surely won. They looked back at the calm, quiet sea, and they knew our enemies are underneath that. We won. In the same way, Advent is a time when we look back, but we look back at the calm, quiet tomb of Jesus Christ that's empty, and we know we've won. And we know our sin and Satan and death has been dealt with already. We already won. So Advent should be a time of celebration and joy because we think about, I wasn't doing anything and God came out after us. We didn't even want him and yet he said, I will fight for you. Just be quiet. Just be quiet. But Advent is also a time when we look forward. It's also a time when we look forward. See, the parting of the Red Sea was just the beginning. It was just the beginning. See, they had been saved through the Red Sea for what purpose? For the promised land. He saved them in the Red Sea for the promised land where they could fully worship God. But before they got to the promised land, they had to go through the wilderness. Before they got to the place they were headed, they had to go through the wilderness. And it was in the wilderness where God gave them his law, where God gave them his word, where God showed them what he was like and showed them what they were like and what the relationship was about. All of it in preparation for the promised land. All of it in preparation for the promised land. And church... We are still in the wilderness. You are currently walking in the wilderness because we're not home yet. The promised land isn't here yet. We're in the wilderness where he's teaching us his word. He's showing us what he's like. We're learning through faith what he's like. He's telling us what we're like and what he expects of us and where joy is and what this world's really like. All of it to prepare us for our inheritance to come. We're still in the wilderness, and life in the wilderness is tough. It's tough. See, in the wilderness, you still sin against the God you love. In the wilderness, you still sin against people you love. In the wilderness, you still get really hurt by people. In the wilderness, you'll see sin and suffering and evil that overwhelms you. And in the wilderness, people still die. Life in the wilderness before the promised land is difficult. And the great hope you and I have, the great hope that we have is that we're not led by someone like Moses. We're not led by someone like Moses who grows weary and tired of us. Moses led the people through the Red Sea. They get in the wilderness. He leads them. And over time, he gets weary of them, tired of them. He can't take one more request. One more sin, one more problem, one more burden to carry. Listen, don't turn there. Listen to how Moses, his breaking point in the wilderness. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get me to give all this people 
For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Moses tells God, God, I'd rather you kill me than keep leading people like them. I mean, think about that. People like us. Moses says, I'd rather die than keep leading people like them. And I'd be curious to know how many of you think that's the way Jesus sounds. I'd be curious to know how many of you think that's the disposition of our, G- of our Jesus who leads us in the wilderness. But I wonder how many of you really think, when you think and imagine what he's like, all you imagine is something like this. Really, that sin again? Really, that problem again? Really, that request again? I can't take it. I can't wait for the future version of you because I'm tired of this one. How many of you think that's the way he really interacts with you? How many of you think that's more spiritual to be treated that way? That the really spiritual people really get serious like this? Well, God's really angry with them all the time. Can I tell you, that would be what our leader sounded like if it was anyone other than Jesus. If the one who led us as a people was anyone other than Christ, they would sound like Moses. They would get tired of us and weary of us, and we would find every single leader, no matter how great they may be, lacking in love and in care care and concern for us. But not so with Jesus. He never grows weary of you. Never. Never. His heart never grows cold towards you. He never gives you the cold shoulder. He never lacks love. He never lacks power. He never lacks care. Your sins and your issues and your weaknesses and your faults, they do not dissuade him from leading and from loving you. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Listen to how our shepherd sounds. And I want you to hear this verse. I want you to think, is that how I think Jesus treats me? Really? Some of you may be so busy, you haven't thought much about Jesus this week. Think about it right now. Is this how you think he talks to you? Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is is light. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, and I mean no one, will snatch them out of my hand. Is that what Jesus sounds like to you right now? Like, does he sound like Moses or like how he actually sounds? Like, when you interact with God, do you have this sense of him saying, come to me? Where are you going? They have nothing over there for you. Come to me. I want to teach you. I want, I want to give you a better burden to carry. It's light, I promise you. Come to me. Is Jesus frustrated and angry or is he pleading like he actually is? Come to me. I know you're tired. That's why I want you here. 
Does Jesus, in your mind, threaten you with, if you mess up again, you're not going to make it? That's not what he sounds like, church. He says, you are going to make it. I'm going to get you there. No one will snatch them from my hand, is what he said. Does Jesus sound like the numbers text, or does he sound like he actually sounds pleading with his people, come to me? I know you've messed up. I know you're weary. I know you have problems. I know you're broken. I want you to be around me. I wonder how Jesus sounds to you in this season. I wonder how you imagine him speaking to you. And I want you to know he wants to carry your burden. He wants to. And he's the only one who can. See, during Advent, during Advent, we're filled with joy as we look back at his victory. But you're also filled with this incredible longing for Christ to come again. You have this incredible longing for, hurry up. I'm tired of the wilderness. Tired of it. I want to be home. You should have this longing, Christian, you should have this longing in you for home because we're not there. If you don't have that longing, it's probably because you're filled up on food from this world and you've forgotten that the wilderness is not where we end. So in this season, we look back and we look at all the joy of Christmas. We look forward and think, I can't wait for the day of resurrection. Can't wait till everyone who's died in the wilderness is raised from the dead with him. Can't wait. I can't wait. So this Christmas season, when you have joys that are so potent and so great and they're great memories, enjoy them. But take a moment just to consider these joys are nothing in comparison to the promised land to come. But also when you have sorrows this Christmas season, when you're around family and you're hurt and you're wounded and you begin to think, I can't trust God. The wilderness is too tough. There's too much going on. There's too much hurt, too much pain. Remember the true and the better Moses. Remember that Christ has come. He already won. Christ will come. We'll get home one day. But in the meantime, he's leading you in love and in care and in tenderness and truth. And he never grows weary of you. And he will get every single one of his people home. That's the way Jesus sounds, church. Let's pray. Father, would you give us a fresh reminder? Would you give us fresh faith to believe that the way you speak in the scriptures, God, is actually your voice? That the way you interact with us is not in frustration, not in a guilt trip, not in shame. Jesus, all of that already fell on you at the cross. The way, Jesus, you lead your people is in love. The way you lead your people is pleading with them to come to you, the one who has everything they're after. God, give us faith to believe that. God, forgive us for all the lies that we've clung to as if they're true. Forgive us for believing that we're too far gone. Forgive us for believing that we don't need help. God, make us a people who remember and see afresh that this Jesus is better than we imagined. He's better than we thought. And that when we think he's growing tired of us, God, Remind us of your word. That you beckon all of your people to cast their anxieties on you. 
You beckon all of your people to trust in you. And God, would you show us how faithful you are to your word? We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Church, let's stand. Let's sing together.